Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting July 3rd, 2015, we survey answers from six continents to the big question feature in the new WPJ summer issue, who has the most to lose from climate change in your country? We'll also point out other top stories in the new summer issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports news service. Well, deal or no deal, that's the question as nuclear talks with Iran reach their climax. An agreement with Tehran has been a central goal of the Obama White House from day one, but recent tough talk by Iran's supreme leader has cast doubt on whether this will happen. Ali Khamenei has agreed to walk back from a preliminary agreement made back in April. President Obama made it clear where he stands. There has been a lot of talk on the other side from the Iranian negotiators about whether, in fact, they can abide by some of the terms that came up in Luzon. If they cannot, that's going to be a problem. Uh, Because I've said from the start, uh, I will walk away from the negotiations if, in fact, uh, it's a bad deal. Specifically, this is what the president wants. If we can't provide assurances that the pathways for Iran obtaining a nuclear weapon are closed, and if we can't verify that, if the inspections regime, the verification regime is inadequate, uh, then uh, we're not going to get a deal. Uh, And we've been very clear to the Iranian government about that. Meantime, big news on another key foreign policy item, the president announcing that formal diplomatic ties with Cuba will resume and that each country will open an embassy in Washington and Havana. A trade embargo remains, however, that can only be removed by Congress. Even so, the diplomatic move formally brings to an end decades of frosty estrangement dating back to the Eisenhower era, 10 presidents ago. It's all part of Obama's determination to move beyond the Cold War era, though worsening ties with Russia and perhaps with China are threatening to turn back the clock. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. We do not believe that it is in danger. In fact, the Australian government is making every effort to ensure that the Great Barrier Reef is preserved for generations to come. The Great Barrier Reef is not threatened by climate change, by nutrient runoff from agriculture, by mining or drilling. Despite the assurances of Australia's Foreign Minister Julie Bishop seeking to correct comments by U.S. President Barack Obama, there are serious danger warnings for the Great Barrier Reef, both from the World Wildlife Fund and the World Heritage Committee. Indeed, the reef, those who enjoy and depend on it, may well be among the biggest victims of climate change down under, according to Christopher Reedy, an associate professor at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology in Sydney. Reedy is one of the experts from six continents who answered the big question in World Policy Journal's new summer 2015 issue, who has the most to lose from climate change in your country? To review those responses for this podcast, 
I spoke recently with WPJ Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick. Yaffa, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Thank you for having me back. Let's stay with Australia, which really reminds us is the driest of inhabited continents with a history of devastating drought, floods, fires, and tropical cyclones. What are the climate-related changes already evident in the most populated areas by his account? Sure. Well, these areas are certainly becoming drier and hotter. In the last three years, Australia has seen record heat waves. Um, and that's not it. The extreme fire weather is increasing, and the extreme fire weather is lasting for longer periods of time. And if and when there are storms, they are quite intense, destroying property and existing infrastructure. And yet the government has lagged behind many other countries. What are the examples of that that he cites? Well, Australia was one of the last countries to ratify the Kyoto Protocols, which was designed to reduce greenhouse emissions worldwide. It also recently removed its price control on carbon emissions, and so far it lacks a credible policy to achieve even a modest emissions reduction, despite its pledge to do so. And the slow response reveals who really has the most to lose, Reedy says, uh, not so much from climate change itself, but from effective worldwide policies to counter it. So who are they? So these are the powerful mining companies and the politicians that support them. These companies thrive on digging up vast reserves of fossil fuels and shipping them around the world. If Australia really wants to address climate change, it needs to keep its coal and gas in the ground unburnt, not extract it and send it across the globe. Moving on, Zimbabwe is one of many countries where small-stake farmers, already marginalized by the political system, have most to lose from climate change, according to Admire Nyamwanza at the University of Cape Town. How much of the land do they occupy, and where do they fit into the overall economy? These smallholder farmers actually occupy two-thirds of all the agricultural land in the country. And so they occupy a key position in the country's overall economic growth and food security. It's important to remember that Zimbabwe is sometimes known as the breadbasket of Africa, but certainly of its own country, and these farmers are what sustain this country. So a crisis for small farmers could create big ripples huge ripples on food security across the entire country, both in terms of the crops that they provide and the livestock that they raise. Changes in rainfall and temperature dynamic can alter crop and livestock production significantly. Um, And this is what sustains the local population. Small farmers in Turkey have already lost a lot to climate change, reports Ali Karam Kayhan at Istanbul University, especially spreading desertification that has driven so many from their lands to the big cities. Talk about that. Well, desertification, especially in central parts of Turkey, where agriculture is a key source of employment, has posed a huge issue. Over the last few decades, unsustainable farming methods have led to water scarcity, a loss of soil, reduced crop production, and there have been increased costs in agriculture. So this has led a lot of farmers to abandon their lands and head to the cities. So further impediments to farming and less agricultural production would also contribute to an urban crisis. Undoubtedly, when decreased crop yield is added to urban population growth and, of course, increased food demand, the impact of agriculture won't just affect the farmers, but the population as a whole, which has a reduced food and water production or output. From India, our contributor was Dr. Maharaj K. Pandit, a professor at the University of Delhi's Department of Environmental Studies, who fears agricultural losers, of course, but also an increase in urban diseases and other health issues. Tell tell us more about that. 
So with increased temperatures and erratic rainfall, these extreme weather events we've discussed, there will be an agricultural productivity loss, but it doesn't just stop, as you said, with the farmers. For many of the urban lower-class folk who live in the city slums, warmer and or wetter periods due to global warming will provide ideal conditions for the expansion of mosquito-borne diseases like malaria created by excessive rainfall or droughts in the river. Meanwhile, a lack of sanitation and potable water will increase contaminated water and foodborne diseases like cholera and typhoid. And then, of course, warmer temperatures will also induce an increase in respiratory diseases and fatalities during summer months. Dr. Pandit also sees great vulnerability both in mountain regions and on the coasts. Yes, mountain landscapes like the Himalayas that we all know and coastal regions like the Sunderbans and Bengal will lose the most from climate changes. These biodiversity hotspots are likely to witness species, range shifts, extinctions, biological invasions, and of course changes in these regions will impact human communities that depend on these ecosystems for survival. Uh, Worse yet, coastal regions will be vulnerable to inundations due to sea levels rising. And one iconic victim may be India's answer to the polar bear. The Royal Bengal Tiger and its unique mangrove ecosystem certainly stand to lose the most. In fact, recent estimates are that there is less than 2,500 tigers remaining, which is catastrophic given that the Royal Bengal Tiger is the national animal of both India and Bangladesh. (laughs) From Spain, our contributor is Ibon Galarraga, Deputy Director of the Basque Center for Climate Change, who begins with another health and safety perspective. Talk about that. Sure. Well, he says society's most vulnerable are those suffering the most from heat stress-related illnesses and food-related illnesses, which are traditionally the elderly and the very young who are the most sensitive to disruptions in weather and food production. From an economic uh, perspective, Garaga sees threats uh, to both agriculture and energy. Sure. So changes in water flow are likely to have the biggest impact on the agricultural and energy sectors. Ecosystems across the board, he says, will suffer. So many services provided by nature, from nutrient cycling to soil formation, provisioning services such as fishing and other food production and medicinal uh, resources and energy generation, even regulating services like carbon um, sequestration and water and air purification, cultural services, think recreational, scientific, historical, all stand to be seriously impaired by these changes in water flow. Surveying Latin America for us is Jennifer Doherty Bigara of the Inter-American Development Bank. She says despite praise for the region's development agenda, it could be a bitter memory if it isn't updated to deal with climate change. What policy areas does she earmark for attention? These areas include infrastructure projects, basic services, fiscal reforms, social programs, and even larger economic strategies, areas that will help both cities and rural areas develop more resiliency to cope with rising sea levels, changes to agricultural production, changes to weather. But recent history suggests that development in the region has outpaced planning capacity at the local level. What does she say about that? Yes, Latin America's model of urban expansion has overwhelmed planning capacities at the local or municipal level, and climate change will only further stress budget allocations and limit government's ability to improve the quality of life for its citizens. So though poverty has dropped to 27.6% in 2014 across the region, climate change could actually jeopardize further decreases in So further improvements must align these social and climate variables to attain a sustainable and inclusive growth. 
Moving further north, in Canada, the native Inuit people uh, could face physical or at least cultural extinction, according to Erica Dingman, a director of the Arctic in Context program at World Policy Institute. Talk about their special links to the land, the sea, and the ice, all already corrupted by man and nature. For the Inuit, whose existence is linked to these elements, the land, the sea, the ice, the loss of tradition, such as hunting and fishing, is tantamount to the loss of culture. It's what they talk about over dinner time, if you can imagine, where historically their catch has fed their families and communities. Their traditions are now in jeopardy. Their methods of food production have been compromised. And it doesn't just stop there. Their homeland, the Arctic, is laced with pollutants contributing to the melting sea ice and permafrost. This is poisoning local food, infecting mother's milk, Broadly speaking, threatening further havoc to the ecological sources responsible for the health and well-being of the Inuit population. Dingman notes that the Inuit have been warning those further south about the larger threat for over a decade, uh, quoting Canadian Inuit leader Sheila Watt-Cloutier. What does she say? She warns that the Arctic serves as, quote, the canary in the coal mine for the global environment. The Inuit and the indigenous that reside in the Arctic face a real possibility of extinction. At the very least, they have to adapt incredibly quickly to the environmental changes that they really didn't cause. But as she says, they're not the only ones who stand to lose. Their story really serves as a model for the global community of what they can come to expect in the future if collectively the global community does not begin to address these issues. Yaffa, thank you. Thank you. Yaffa Frederick is managing editor of World Policy Journal, discussing the big question in WPJ's new summer 2015 issue, who has the most to lose from climate change in your country? Also featured in the summer 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, cover headline Climate Cliff, You'll find arguments for solar, wind, and nuclear power, a story about the pollution, corruption, and politics behind China's smothering skies, and a conversation with Nobel Prize winner Hiro Amano about the cool light of LEDs that he helped develop and their larger potential impact on energy, environment, and society. Plus, tune into next week's podcast as we talk with Kunda Dixit, editor-publisher of the Nepal Times and a WPJ website contributor, about the earthquakes that devastated his country, but also may be shaking up its politics for the better. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.